Chapter forty two of El Dorado by Baroness Orzy. Read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in September two thousand and seven. Chapter forty two. The Guard House of the Rue Saint Anne. The little cortege was turning after the great gates of the House of Justice. It was intensely cold, a bitter northeasterly gale and blowing from across the heights of Montmartre, driving sleet and snow and half-frozen rain into the faces of the men, and finding its way up their sleeves, down their collars, and round the knees of their threadbare breeches. Armand, whose fingers were numb with the cold, could scarcely feel the reins in his hands. Chauvelin was riding close beside him. But the two men had not exchanged one word since the moment when the small troop of some twenty mounted soldiers had filed up inside the courtyard, and Chauvelin, with a curt word of command, had ordered one of the troopers to take Armand's horse on the lead. A hackney-coach brought up the rear of the cortege, with a man riding at either door, and two more following at a distance of twenty paces. Heron's gaunt, ugly face, crowned with a battered sugar-loaf hat, appeared from time to time at the window of the coach. He was no horseman, and, moreover, preferred to keep the prisoner closely under his own eye. The corporal had told Armand that the prisoner was with Citizen Heron inside the coach, in irons. Beyond that, the soldiers could tell him nothing. They knew nothing of the object of this expedition. Vaguely they might have wondered in their dull minds why this particular prisoner was thus being escorted out of the conciergerie prison, with so much paraphernalia, and such an air of mystery when there were thousands of prisoners in the city and the provinces at the present moment, who anon would be bundled up wholesale into carts to be dragged to the guillotine like a flock of sheep to the butchers. But even if they wondered, they made no remarks among themselves. Their faces, blue with the cold, were the perfect mirrors of their own unconquerable stolidity. The tower-clock of Notre-Dame struck seven when the small cavalcade finally moved slowly out of the monumental gates. In the east the wan light of a February morning slowly struggled out of the surrounding gloom. Now the towers of many churches loomed ghost-like against the dull grey sky, and down below, on the right, the frozen river, like a smooth sheet of steel, wound its graceful curves round the islands and past the façade of the Louvre Palace, whose walls looked grim and silent, like the mausoleum of dead giants of the past. All around the great city gave signs of awakening. The business of the day renewed its course every twenty-four hours, despite the tragedies of death and of dishonour that walked with it hand in hand. From the Place de la Révolution the intermittent roll of drums came from time to time, with its muffled sound striking the ear of the passer-by. Along the quay opposite an open-air camp was already astir. Men, women, and children engaged in the great task of clothing and feeding the people of France, armed against tyranny, were bending to their task even before the wintry dawn had spread its pale grey tints over the narrower streets of the city. Armand shivered under his cloak. This silent ride beneath the laden sky, through the veil of half-frozen rain and snow, seemed like a dream to him. And now, as the outriders of the little cavalcade turned across the Pont au Change, he saw spread out on his left what appeared like the living panorama of these three weeks that had just gone by. He could see the house of the Rue de saint germain lauxrois where Percy had lodged before he carried through the rescue of the little Dauphin. Armand could even see the window at which the dreamer had stood, weaving noble dreams that his brilliant daring had turned into realities, until the hand of a traitor had brought him down to—to what? Armand would not have dared at this moment to look back at that hideous, vulgar hackney-coach, wherein that proud, reckless adventurer, who had defied fate and mocked death, sat in chains, beside a loathsome creature whose very propinquity was an outrage. Now they were passing under the very house on the Quai de la Ferraille, 
above the saddler's shop, the house with Marguerite had lodged ten days ago, whither Armand had come trying to fool himself into the belief that the love of little mother could be deceived into blindness against his own crime. He had tried to draw a veil before those eyes, which he had scarcely dared to encounter, but he knew that that veil must lift one day, and then a curse would send him forth, outlawed and homeless, a wanderer on the face of the earth. Soon as the little cortege wended its way northwards, it filed out beneath the walls of the temple prison. There was the main gate, with its sentries standing at attention, there the archway with the guichet of the concierge, and beyond it the paved courtyard. Armand closed his eyes deliberately. He could not bear to look. No wonder that he shivered and tried to draw his cloak closer around him. Every stone, every street-corner was full of memories. The chill that struck to the very marrow of his bones came from no outward cause. It was the very hand of remorse that, as it passed over him, froze the blood in his veins and made the rattle of those wheels behind him sound like a hellish knell. At last the more closely populated quarters of the city were left behind. On ahead the first section of the guard had turned into the Rue Saint-Anne. The houses became more sparse, intersected by narrow pieces of terrain vague, or small weed-covered bits of kitchen-garden. Then a halt was called. It was quite light now as light as it would ever be beneath this leaden sky. Rain and snow still fell in gusts, driven by the blast. Someone ordered Armand to dismount. It was probably Chauvelin. He did as he was told, and a trooper led him to the door of an irregular brick building that stood isolated on the right, extended on either side by a low wall, and surrounded by a patch of uncultivated land, which now looked like a sea of mud. On ahead was the line of fortifications, dimly outlined against the grey of the sky, and in between, brown, sodden earth, with here and there a detached house, a cabbage-patch, a couple of windmills deserted and desolate. The loneliness of an unpopulated outlying quarter of the great mother-city, a useless limb of her active body, an ostracized member of her vast family. Mechanically Armand had followed the soldier to the door of the building. Here Chauvelin was standing, and bade him follow. A smell of hot coffee hung in the dark, narrow passage in front. Chauvelin led the way to a room on the left still that smell of hot coffee. Ever after it was associated in Armand's mind with this awful morning in the guard-house of the Rue Saint-Anne, when the rain and snow beat against the windows, and he stood there in the low guard-room, shivering and half-numbed with cold. There was a table in the middle of the room, and on it stood cups of hot coffee. Chauvelin bade him drink, suggesting, not unkindly, that the warm beverage would do him good. Armand advanced further into the room, and saw that there were wooden benches all round against the wall. On one of these sat his sister Marguerite. When she saw him she made a sudden, instinctive movement to go to him, but Chauvelin interposed in his usual bland, quiet manner. "'Not just now, citizeness,' he said. She sat down again, and Armand noted how cold and stony seemed her eyes, as if life within her was at a standstill, and a shadow that was almost like death had atrophied every emotion in her. "'I trust you have not suffered too much from the cold, Lady Blakeney,' resumed Chauvelin politely. "'We ought not to have kept you waiting here for so long, but delay at departure is sometimes inevitable.' She made no reply, only acknowledging his reiterated inquiry as to her comfort with an inclination of the head. Armand had forced himself to swallow some coffee, and for the moment he felt less chilled. He held the cup between his two hands, and gradually some warmth crept into his bones. "'Little mother,' he said in English, "'Try and drink some of this. It will do you good.' "'Thank you, dear,' she replied. "'I have had some. I am not cold.' Then a door at the end of the room was pushed open, 
and Heron stalked in. "'Are we going to be all day in this confounded hole?' he queried roughly. Armand, who was watching his sister very closely, saw that she started at the sight of the wretch, and seemed immediately to shrink still further within herself, whilst her eyes, suddenly luminous and dilated, rested on him like those of a captive bird upon an approaching cobra. But Chauvelin was not to be shaken out of his suave manner. "'One moment, Citizen Heron,' he said. "'This coffee is very comforting.' "'Is the prisoner with you?' he added lightly. Heron nodded in the direction of the other room. "'In there,' he said curtly. "'Then perhaps, if you will be so good, citizen, to invite him thither, I could explain to him his future position and our own.' Heron muttered something between his fleshy lips, then turned back towards the open door, solemnly spat twice on the threshold, and nodded his gaunt head once or twice in a manner which apparently was understood from within. "'No, sergeant, I don't want you,' he said gruffly. "'Only the prisoner.' A second or two later Sir Percy Blakeney stood in the doorway. His hands were behind his back, obviously handcuffed, but he held himself very erect, though it was clear that this caused him a mighty effort. As soon as he had crossed the threshold his quick glance had swept right round the room. He saw Armand, and his eyes lit up almost imperceptibly. Then he caught sight of Marguerite, and his pale face took on suddenly a more ashen hue. Chauvelin was watching him with those keen, light-coloured eyes of his. Blakeney, conscious of this, made no movement. Only his lips tightened, and the heavy lids fell over the hollow eyes, completely hiding their glance. But what even the most astute, most deadly enemy could not see, was that subtle message of understanding that passed at once between Marguerite and the man she loved. It was a magnetic current, intangible, invisible to all save to her and to him. She was prepared to see him, prepared to see in him all that she had feared—the weakness, the mental exhaustion, the submission to the inevitable. Therefore she had also schooled her glance to express to him all that she knew she would not be allowed to say—the reassurance that she had read his last letter, that she had obeyed it to the last word, save where fate and her enemy had interfered with regard to herself. With a slight, imperceptible movement, imperceptible to every one save to him, she had seemed to handle a piece of paper in her kerchief. Then she had nodded slowly, with her eyes, steadfast, reassuring, fixed upon him, and his glance gave answer that he had understood. But Chauvelin and Heron had seen nothing of this. They were satisfied that there had been no communication between the prisoner and his wife and friend. "'You are no doubt surprised, Sir Percy,' said Chauvelin, after a while, to see Lady Blakeney here. "'She, as well as Citizen Saint-Just, will accompany our expedition to the place where you will lead us. We none of us know where that place is. Citizen Heron and myself are entirely in your hands. You might be leading us to certain death, or again, to a spot where your own escape would be an easy matter to yourself.' "'You will not be surprised, therefore, that we have thought fit to take certain precautions, both against any little ambuscade which you may have prepared for us, or against your making one of those daring attempts at escape, for which the noted Scarlet Pimpernel is so justly famous.' He paused, and only Heron's low chuckle of satisfaction broke the momentary silence that followed. Blakeney made no reply. Obviously he knew exactly what was coming. He knew Chauvelin and his ways knew the kind of torturous conception that would find origin in his brain. The moment that he saw Marguerite sitting there, he must have guessed that Chauvelin once more desired to put her precious life in the balance of his intrigues. "'Citizen Heron is impatient, Sir Percy,' resumed Chauvelin, after a while, "'so I must be brief. Lady Blakeney, as well as Citizen Saint-Just, will accompany us on this expedition, to whithersoever you may lead us. They will be the hostages which we will hold against your own good faith.' 
at the slightest suspicion, a mere suspicion, perhaps, that you have played us false, at a hint that you have led us into an ambush, or that the whole of this expedition has been but a trick on your part to effect your own escape, or if merely our hope of finding Capet at the end of our journey is frustrated, the lives of our two hostages belong to us, and your friend and your wife will be summarily shot before your eyes. Outside the rain pattered against the window-panes, the gale whistled mournfully among the stunted trees, but within this room not a sound stirred the deadly stillness of the air, and yet at this moment hatred and love, savage lust and sublime self-abnegation, the most powerful passions the heart of man can know, held three men here enchained, each a slave to his dominant passion, each ready to stake his all for the satisfaction of his master. Heron was the first to speak. "'Well,' he said with a fierce oath, "'what are we waiting for? The prisoner knows how he stands. Now we can go.' "'One moment, citizen,' interposed Chauvelin, his quiet manner contrasting strangely with his colleague's savage mood. "'You have quite understood, Sir Percy,' he continued, directly addressing the prisoner, "'the conditions under which we are all of us about to proceed on this journey?' "'All of us?' said Blakeney slowly. "'Are you taking it for granted, then, that I accept your conditions, and that I am prepared to proceed on the journey?' "'If you do not proceed on the journey,' cried Heron, with savage fury, "'I'll strangle that woman with my own hands now!' Blakeney looked at him for a moment or two through half-closed lids. And it seemed then, to those who knew him well, to those who loved him, and to the man who hated them, that the mighty sinews almost cracked with the passionate desire to kill. Then the sunken eyes turned slowly to Marguerite, and she alone caught the look. It was a mere flash of a humble appeal for pardon. It was all over in a second. Almost immediately the tension on the pale face relaxed, and into the eyes there came that look of acceptance, nearly akin to fatalism, an acceptance of which the strong alone are capable, for with them it only comes in the face of the inevitable. Now he shrugged his broad shoulders, and once more turning to Heron, he said quietly, "'You leave me no option in that case. As you have remarked before, Citizen Heron, why should we wait any longer? Surely we can go now.'" End of chapter 42